Parts? O'Reilly Auto Parts has parts. Need them fast? We've got fast. No matter what you need, we have thousands of professional parts people doing their part to make sure you have it. Product availability. Just one part that makes O'Reilly stand apart. The professional parts people. Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts. Hi, I'm Michael Massey, the FIA Formula One Race Director and Safety Delegate, and you have the pleasure to be listening to Beyond the Grid. Hello, everyone, and welcome once again to Beyond the Grid with me, Tom Clarkson. Well, what a season opener we had in Austria at the weekend. Breathless racing, reliability issues, the extent to which we haven't seen in years, and some overtaking controversy. It was F1 at its brilliant best. As a spectator, it was hard to keep track of what was going on. So just imagine for a second if it was your job to know everything that was happening on track and in the pit lane. From Roman Grosjean exceeding track limits to Lewis Hamilton and Alex Albon colliding in the closing stages, or even Sergio Perez speeding in the pit lane, it would be a mind-bogglingly complex task. And that's where my guest this week comes in. Michael Massey is the Formula One race director and safety delegate. He's the most senior FIA official attending every race, which makes his office in race control the place where the buck stops. He's still relatively new to the job, having taken the reins at the start of 2019, following the tragic death of his predecessor and mentor, Charlie Whiting, on the eve of last year's Australian Grand Prix. Overnight, in what was only his 10th race working for the FIA, Michael stepped into the breach and he rose to the challenge magnificently. Remarkably, given the responsibility resting on his shoulders, Michael is only 41 years old. That makes him just a few months older than Kimi Raikkonen. Yet at races, Kimi has to dance to his tune. But Michael wouldn't be intimidated by anyone in the Formula One paddock. He might be young, but he's put the hard yards in to get where he is today. Back home in Australia, he had senior roles in super touring and supercars. And he was even the CEO of Rally Australia. And his first touch points with Formula One were in Singapore and Korea. Remember that? Where he was heavily involved in delivering the inaugural Grand Prix for those countries in 2008 and 2010. So hopefully you're starting to build a picture of Michael in your head. Well, let's now hand the canvas to him to complete the picture. From running races to running driver's briefings, Michael has one of the most interesting roles in Formula One, and he discusses it all. I hope you enjoy our conversation. Well, Michael, it's great to see you via Zoom. We're both here in Austria, but we're having to talk via computer because we're in different hotels. But great to see you all the same. No, likewise, Tom. It's great to see you too. Uh, I think I've only seen you via Zoom since uh, about early February. Yeah. <laughs> now, look, mate, it's, I feel it's a real privilege to grab you. We're speaking the day after the season opening Austrian Grand Prix. What has today held for the FIA's race director? Uh, the Monday after a race meeting's been compiling effectively some reports from the weekend uh, because of the unique situation that we're in having back-to-back -back races at the same venue meetings about fixing things for next weekend uh, debriefs on what can be improved 
looking forward to planning Silverstone uh, with the team at Silverstone and uh, Motorsport UK and the various British authorities, just other little planning meetings along the way. So it's sort of um, been not far different to what lockdown was really in Australia, other than the fact that I'm sitting in Austria rather than uh, where I was previously. Michael, is it an interesting exercise for you to be going back to the same racetrack next weekend? It is. It's a unique exercise um, because there were, you know, little bits and pieces that we learned from last weekend and coming out into pit lane um, and, you know, just to go around the circuit and have a look at a couple of things last night, it's like, well, we can actually fix or change this for next weekend to improve it, which is a unique situation that um, hasn't really arisen before. So, yeah, it's strange but it's also helpful in another way now a lot of guys and girls listening to this will be going that was an awesome grand prix yesterday it must have been pretty busy in race control how much did you enjoy it did you have time to enjoy it uh no (laughs) simply put um because you're so within race control and you know doing my role as the race director you're so focused on getting the job done looking at all the cars Um, you know, deployment of safety cars, making sure all of the marshals are safe and so forth. And so that's our primary focus in race control. And, you know, you you look at really the last 50% of the race, give or take, was super intense uh, with all of that happening. And um, the only reason why I knew it was a great television spectacle was uh, my mother sent me a text message saying that was amazing to watch on television. So, um, yeah, but so I'll probably sit down and actually watch it tomorrow night and watch a replay of it. Is every race like that for you in race control or are there quieter ones? There have been. It's sort of up and down. You can't really predict, but there are quieter ones that you get the chance to sort of follow the race a lot more, uh, let's call it, because you don't have, you know, be it mechanical breakdowns or uh, safety cars or virtual safety cars and everything just sort of runs seamlessly from beginning to end and, you know, you can spend more time having a look at sector times and gaps and seeing who's doing who and sort of following pit strategies a bit better. Um, so, yeah, there are, but then there's the other ones and, you know, use yesterday as an example or Hockenheim last year where literally from start to finish um, <laughs> you're struggling to take a breath. Have any of the teams spoken to you about the, the reliability stuff that was going on yesterday? What, we had, what, 11 finishes on the lead lap or something? Yeah, something like that. And it was really, um, you know, myself and Ross uh, had a quick discussion about it last night and spoken to a couple of the sporting directors uh, late yesterday afternoon as I was going to get my COVID test, uh, funnily enough. And I think it was a huge level of surprise, particularly considering the reliability that we saw in Barcelona Um, you know, to effectively go over the two weeks of testing and have very, very minimal issues to then come here and see the reliability issues that we had um, was a huge surprise for those of us in race control and I think for the teams as well. Why is it? Is it something to do with the curbs here? No, not at all. I think there was just a variety of factors and speaking to some of them, it was issues that they've never seen before. No, obviously, I heard this and reading a little bit of the press reports about um, Mercedes instructed their drivers to stay off the curbs, but some of them were engine issues, some of them were electronics issues. Obviously, with the we had um, you know Kimi losing a wheel, so I think you sort of it was a combination of everything, but it was a level of unreliability that we haven't seen really in a very long time. 
a bit of a surprise for all of us. Yeah, and it threw up a great result, actually, didn't it, in terms of, you know, getting Lando Norris on the podium and stuff like that? Yeah, I think, you know, for me, it was to see it close, seeing, um, you know, the way Lando came through, uh, seeing Sergio racing up there, obviously, with um, Max early on, Alex in the mix. You know, there was, you know, Charles coming from where he did to where he finished. You know, I think overall from the little bits and pieces of when you actually saw the results at the end and the way it all panned out, you know, I would hope that it was a fantastic spectacle for uh, those viewing on television around the world. Now, look, you mentioned the COVID test there. How much extra work has there been in the build-up to Austria because of the COVID crisis? It's an astronomical amount of work is probably the best way to put it. We've been having daily return to motorsport meetings at the FIA for the past 10 weeks and putting together the return to motorsport guidelines that cover all forms of the sport. We've introduced a new appendix to the FIA International Sporting Code to cover COVID-related events for F1, 2, 3 and Super Cup, so the broader F1 events, and just all of the planning, testing regimes, working with our partners at Formula One, working with, uh, you know, we've been having pretty much weekly meetings with the Formula One sporting directors on trying to make sure that we've covered every single base. So there's been a core group of people have put in a mammoth amount of hours into the planning, just internally, let alone what the teams have had to do to change their processes, procedures, and everything to adopt to uh, the new environment under um, a COVID situation. And how much satisfaction do you take from, or is it 10,000 tests, I think, over the weekend were carried out and every one of them came back negative? Yeah, so over the weekend itself, um, so let's call it from everyone arriving to the end of yesterday, I think we've had the vicinity of about 5,000 tests on event, probably a similar number pre-event, so before everyone got to Austria for various testing regimes, but particularly on event, having had no positive tests at all, is a huge satisfaction, I think, vindicates in a way that, you know, we we will have our critics that we've gone too hard with regards to the processes and procedures that we've put in place. We will have those that probably say that we haven't gone far enough. From an FIA perspective, trying to balance all of the risk, using the various independent experts and guidance that we've received from a vast variety of people, I think we've achieved the right balance and the outcome that we got over the weekend, there was sort of a level of relief yesterday morning when we sort of got our group message saying that there's no positive results again on for Sunday. But then getting to the end of yesterday, it was a huge relief for everyone. And, you know, congratulations to everyone involved on the amount of work that was put in to get to this point. But also, wasn't it a sort of touch of reality, I felt, when, uh, you know, everyone was talking about COVID and then suddenly... We get to the race weekend itself and suddenly the teams are squabbling and, and Red Bull are protesting Mercedes over the DAS system and it's like, ah, oh, Formula One's back, you know. <laughs> as soon as uh, we got an inkling that the protest was going to uh, occur and um, said to my colleagues, uh, to Colin Haywood, who was sitting next to me in race control, and said, we're back. <laughs> Don't worry about COVID or anything else. We are back. <laughs> but Michael, actually, on a serious note there, did you come to Austria expecting that protest? Or do you get given the heads up on something like that? No, there was sort of, you know, pre-Melbourne, there was obviously 
discussions happening that that may or may not occur. But you know as well as anyone, Tom, that uh, paddock whispers are, uh, are very loud and clear in a whole lot of areas. Um, so until it actually happens, you don't know. But um, no, we were advised uh, on Friday, not long before that um, it went through, that uh, there was going to be a protest lodged on Friday regarding uh, the DAS. So, and the stewards, as everyone saw, had a, a very long night and, you know, even introducing Zoom elements into a stewards hearing because of, you know, restrictions on staff and so forth. And they made their decision. So DAS is okay for this season, but it's obviously not there for 21. Just on a personal level, Michael, what is your attitude towards technical innovation? I mean, do you welcome it or do you think we need to rein in as much as possible and that's the way to, to get closer racing? It's a double-edged sword, to be quite honest. I think technical innovation is amazing. We've seen so many different things over the course of time, um, be it from a six-wheel Tyrrell to a fan Brabham, the F-duct, um, the double diffuser, which we still have a, a giggle with Ross about going occasionally. So that's part of what F1's teams are there to do. That's Their role is to pick it apart as best as they can. Does not necessarily promote closer racing? Probably not, but I still think there's enough freedom, you know, particularly in the way the 22 regulations have been done. Yes, they're a lot more restricted, but it all, there's a level of freedom there for teams to still show their ingenuity and innovation. It's a balance, to be quite honest, Tom. It's not an easy one way or the other. It's a fine balance, but I'm quite hopeful and, you know, confident that the balance, the FIA and, you know, working with F1 and with the support of the teams have found the right balance um, for the new regulations. And to keep on top of what the teams are doing, how useful was it for someone like Charlie Whiting, your predecessor, to be the poacher turned gamekeeper, to sort of understand the tricks? And yes, you have a history in racing that we're going to get onto, but in Formula One, you haven't jumped that fence. And do you feel exposed because of that in any way? No, I think, um, you know, and going back, looking to where, you know, Charlie came from, from his Brabham days and from that side of it of being effectively a mechanic and so forth and working within the team. But then going from there and into the FIA technical delegate role initially, then moving into the race director role, he had that broad sense of the paddock, knowing everyone, um, you know, the current crop of sporting directors, uh, let's call it, or technical directors, all started off as very junior people when Charlie first came into the role. So they sort of grew with him. But one of the parts, and I remember speaking in detail with him about this in 2018 when we were working together, is that the level of complexity of the modern-day Formula One car needed specialists in different areas. So he had already started having you know, a specialist electronics department uh, within the FIA, more specific technical experts in different areas, because just like a team structured to have so many different experts in different areas, the FIA had to react in a similar way. So, you know, and plus my role is probably a little bit different now in that, you know, Nicholas Tambasis, uh, my colleague, is head of all technical items. I look after the sort of sporting and operational areas together with 
my race director and safety delegate role. And then Federico Lotti, who not many people would have heard of, is the head of financial regulations at the FIA. So we've split it up very much into the three pillars for each of us to concentrate on our respective areas. But we all very much communicate uh, between us to make sure that everything cross-pollinates as best as we can. That's really interesting. So Charlie was already instigating that change. Absolutely, very much so. And, you know, moving on because his role was so broad within it, but he had very much started instigating that change. And, you know, even the prior to uh, myself and uh, Scott Elkins fulfilling the deputy role to Charlie in 2018, Laurent Mekies uh, from Ferrari was the deputy and Marcin Grudkowski from Renault um, was in the FIA technical department, sort of. So that was part of the succession planning that already started happening a number of years earlier. Michael, can we talk a little bit about Charlie and um, the influence he had on your career? I first worked really closely with Charlie setting up the inaugural Korean Grand Prix. So at the time, I was working for CAMS, the Confederation of Australian Motorsport, now Motorsport Australia, and got seconded to Korea for six months to help establish that first event, which was a mammoth task in its own right. But that was really the first time where we worked closely together. You know, I arrived there, I think it was uh, June 2010. And, you know, you'll remember, and a lot of uh, fans that have, of F1 will remember that there was a lot of talk even then if the actual event was going to happen. Um, so my focus went from trying to train Korean officials and organise that side of it to effectively becoming a pseudo project manager and uh, conduit of information to uh, Charlie and the FIA president, Jean Todd at the time, on progress. And, you know, it was a huge part. <laughs> but Mike, how much contact did you have with Charlie back then? Oh, a huge amount. We were sort of through that period, I think we were having daily, if not uh, more emails, phone contact, the various inspections that he did. Um, you know, so that was really the first main interaction where we worked together. And obviously, every year in Australia thereafter came about, but probably the, the moment front and centre uh, that came about was 2018 at the uh, FIA Steward Seminar which uh, I think uh, you were MC for, if I recall correctly. Um, <laughs> and this shining star in, from Australia. Yeah, I'm not sure about that. But um, no, I attended that as part of my role that I was doing within the supercars world and started obviously knowing Herbie and uh, Charlie and sort of you know, did what we did there. And then Herbie uh, said that he was coming to Australia for the Australian Super, uh, sorry, the World Superbike Round a few weeks later um, at Phillip Island. So let's catch up for a bite to eat. And um, it was actually Herbie said, right, so what's your career aspirations? What do you want to do? And I said, well, ultimately, you'd like to work with CW. And, um, you know, when he chooses, being the game to be his uh, successor. And on the other, Herbie being, for those of us that know Herbie very well, and being, you know, one of Charlie's best friends from a very long time, said, cool, let's make it happen. But Mike, that's an extraordinary thing. So you were, I mean, working in supercars in Australia. And even when you were doing that, you wanted, well, you foresaw where you are now today. Yeah, my aspiration, even, you know, from when I started working um, in supercars in that race control environment, you know, and even going back to when I worked with Super Touring in Australia in the late 
90s, um, all of us have our goals in life. And my career goal was to be the Formula One race director. The circumstances by how it came about were extremely sad and tragic to lose a mentor and a friend. But um, yeah, it's, you know, it's probably that discussion with Herbie. And then I remember not long thereafter in 2018 when Laurent um, internally announced his resignation within the FIA, um, that I was sitting at, in, at a restaurant in Adelaide uh, for the first round of the Supercars Championship and sitting at dinner and suddenly my phone rings and it's got Charlie Whiting. And I'm thinking to myself, why is he calling me? He should be busy with Barcelona testing at the moment. So he said, you know, this is what's happened. Obviously, it's not uh, public knowledge as yet. Would it be of interest to you to work with us this year? In what capacity? In as a deputy, his deputy. Um, and it's like, well, yes, obviously, is the answer. And at the time, he said, okay, I've got, uh, there's probably three, three of you that I'd like to sort of trial in an operational capacity at the events, um, which ultimately then came down to two of us. So after effectively the um, summer break in 2018, uh, myself and Scott Elkins shared the role, Scott being the Formula E race director. And then for 2019, the plan was that I would be the permanent deputy for Formula 2 and Formula 3. And then for whatever it was, eight or nine events uh, that clashed with F1, that I would fulfil the uh, F1 race director, uh, deputy race director role um, to Charlie. And then uh, sadly, what uh, occurred in Melbourne took us all completely by surprise. I know it's a painful memory for, for all of us, but can I ask you a little bit about that weekend in terms of how much contact did you have with Charlie prior to the race in, in Melbourne? A fair bit, obviously, in the lead up to and preparation, um, there was quite a bit. And, you know, out there on the, the Tuesday and started sort of preparing bits and pieces Wednesday out there and then myself and Colin Haywood actually came back in the car with him on the Wednesday night back to the hotel and yeah it was like all good planning just sort of standing out the front of the hotel because I was only staying at home down the road and it's like yep we've got to do this this and this tomorrow all things going well let's go and have a bite to eat at the uh, Japanese restaurant around the corner tomorrow night Um, so that was sort of all good fine and uh, yeah then obviously Thursday morning, um, yeah, what happened? Um, he didn't, uh, wasn't able to join us anymore. So yeah, it was a, it was a tough, it was a tough emotional weekend, particularly knowing what had happened very soon after getting to the circuit, but not being able to literally tell us all. You know, the only person that um, I actually did speak to was my mother, because it was like it was all a bit too much. It was a tough day. It was a tough, tough weekend. But um, something that, on the other hand, that I couldn't be more proud of was the way that the entire FIA staff, the F1 community as a whole, with the support of the teams, I was very fortunate that we were in Australia and it was a trackside officiating team that I knew extremely well, obviously with Tim Schenken as the clerk of the course and the entire CAMS team and the Australian Grand Prix Corporation team who I'd had a long relationship with. Without everyone, 
that weekend wouldn't have happened. And the way everyone stepped up and helped each other showed, you know, take out the little niggling and all the rest of it that we see in the background and the the gloves off fight on a racetrack. Behind the scenes, everyone was completely united as one to make sure that we could achieve what we did and got through it all. And the teams were supportive. The teams were amazing. The drivers were amazing. Everyone, um, you know, the teams could not have been more helpful getting through you know, realistically that weekend in Bahrain back to back. I think uh, once we got to China, the uh, the filter started coming off a little bit. And as by the time we got to uh, to Barcelona for the first of the European events, the boys sitting next to me said quite clearly, well, welcome to Formula One. Uh, <laughs> they've all forgotten about uh, <laughs> the nice part. But no, I, honestly, Tom could not have done it without everyone's help in different ways. So Australia 2019 was what? How many Grand Prix had you worked at up until that moment? In an FIA capacity, that was my 10th event. I mean, that is extraordinary. Your 10th event and suddenly you are the race director. Yeah. In a, as a, you know, in an F1 event in an FIA capacity, um, yeah, it was my 10th event. So, you know, I'd been, I'd done some steward trainee elements and that before, but actually in a true operational capacity, yeah, it was 10th event. Mike, what was the best piece of advice that Charlie ever gave you? Best piece of advice Charlie gave me, listen lots, let everyone have their say, don't feel pressured to make a decision on the spot outside of what you do. Yeah, probably just don't be afraid and back to your own instincts probably the sort of the core ones to it and yeah something that sort of resonates backing your own instincts is where you have to go and when you don't have you know I've said this previously when you don't have a point of reference to sort of bounce things off you sort of need to use the broader environment to get some historical information on where things have come from and why things have been done in certain ways to then come to your own conclusion and make your own decisions uh, moving forward. Do you ever find yourself stopping and saying to yourself what would charlie have done right now many times <laughs> many many times <laughs> a lot more than probably what a um a lot of people think but no there's those moments you sort of reflect be it on track inspections be it um analyzing you know i very much look at how i go about things and at an event in between and what you can do and yeah there are a lot of times that you sort of look up and say uh, Come on, mate, give me, can you give me some inspiration, please? <laughs> some guidance, <laughs> be it a lightning bulb or something. <laughs> yeah. What was Charlie's demeanour like in race control? Relaxed. Um, there were a couple of times that he lost it, but even in the heat of the moment, yeah, relaxed. And, you know, even his demeanour over the radio, he only had to raise his voice sort of a couple of decibels with the team managers for them to realise, yep, I've made your point. There's no need for you to continue trying to reiterate that point. And it's like, yep, thank you. <laughs> sort of quite firm in the end. But he had time for everyone. That was unwavering across the board. Can you just explain to people how busy you are between races? Because, I mean, we kind of get the race control bit, I guess. the race, But... Are you constantly travelling between races as well? In a normal year, yes. Obviously, we're doing circuit inspections for, for 
circuits that are currently on the calendar, um, prospective new events that may be on the horizon. Oh, give us an exclusive, mate. No. Come on. <laughs> Have you been to, I don't know, Mugello recently? So no, there's going to be no exclusives on anything. Sorry, Tom. Um, but no, you know, looking at different sites and venues and seeing what's there, doing normal track inspections. You know, there was a number of inspections at Zambort last year. One thing that you are particularly linked with towards the end of last year anyway was the reintroduction of the black and white flag. Um, the sort of let them race mantra. You mean that amazing new flag that came out of nowhere that everyone had forgotten about that? Yeah, we I, had actually. I, I think was... Uh, yeah, I, I did. Absolutely. Um, re, it was a reintroduction. So uh, when was it? It was last used in what was it, Malaysia about 10 years ago, wasn't it? I think there or thereabouts. That sounds about right. Yeah. What triggered that? It was a flag that I was used to using in my previous race director life as a warning flag, which is effectively what it is. Um, I think some countries call it the bad sportsmanship flag. Others call it the warning flag. But effectively, the meaning is the same. It's the rap on the knuckles of don't do it again. I did some, you know, following, there was a couple of things that happened um, throughout the early part of last year. And I started asking around of why don't we use it? What answer did you get when you asked that question? I don't know. <laughs> okay. So there was no real, you know, speaking to a number of uh, current sporting directors, getting an understanding for a couple of the, for them to ask some of the team principals at the time that had been around a little bit longer if they had an understanding as to why, asking my colleagues within the FIA, you know, speaking to Herbie Blash about why, because obviously he had been around so long, asking um, Laurent Mekiez, who obviously had done the role before, and we just said no one could give me effectively an answer as to why. And one of the main reasons for, uh, I said to all of the teams when we were sitting in Hungary, um, that we would reintroduce it after the summer break as a warning. So it wasn't a surprise. And all it was is communicating in a different way. So those type of warnings had happened in the earlier part of the year and in the previous nine years over the radio intercom. So Charlie would hop on the radio to whoever it was at Ferrari or Mercedes or Red Bull, you know, Racing Point, whoever it may have been, and said, I don't like what such and such has done elbows in a little bit more type of scenario so a bit more of a public statement exactly very much a public statement to say we've seen it we don't like it that's your warning don't do it again Mike, have have the drivers taken liberties do they see it as all right we've got a joker now we can keep doing that until senor race director gives us the flag no i think they they respect it more because they all know so, you know, all of the other cars know that it's been shown and what it's been for, whereas the other one was the one-on-one -on -one communication. I think they've all, from my understanding, they respect the fact that there's a very fine line between um, the pleasure and pain, so to speak, to use as the saying goes. So I think they've appreciated it, as have the teams. I would think from what I've understood, the, uh, the viewing public in a similar way, because it's a clear, they all know now, okay, well, it just hasn't been forgotten about or swept away. It actually has been seen and acknowledged. What is the biggest misapprehension about your job? The biggest sort of misunderstanding, do you think? That I'm the one that penalises everyone. 
Ah, I thought you were going to say that. Yeah. <laughs> no, and it's the biggest misapprehension with a lot of race director roles, to be quite honest, that um, everyone thinks that, and no different with Charlie before me, that everyone thought that the race director is the one that uh, applies the penalties, which isn't the case. We have a separate independent, uh, as you're well aware, and you've become a pseudo steward, uh, having been to enough steward seminars recently, Tom, um, that there is quite a lot of training that happens, and we have an FIA, uh, you know, let's call it judiciary, which is the stewards of each event. And in recent years, their sort of capability has been bolstered with the introduction of a driver steward, which a number of have been involved in. So that's probably the biggest misapprehension with the role itself. The display of the black and white flag sits with me as the race director, as does the deployment of a safety car, virtual safety car, stopping a session with a red flag or anything like that. When it comes to, I refer matters to the stewards or the stewards can look at an incident of their own volition, but ultimately they are the ones who issue a penalty. So what triggered you to start thinking about the black and white flag? Can I sort of point at a few instances? Had, for example, Canada 2019, Sebastian Vettel, Lewis Hamilton. That was one, certainly. Sebastian Vettel goes wide and Lewis Hamilton thought there was a gap, but the wall and Sebastian Vettel moving to the right-hand side closed that gap down. Has Vettel just got away with an error and preserved his lead in this Canadian Grand Prix? Sebastian Vettel has been given a five-second time penalty. We've got a five-second time penalty for unsafe re-entry. Head down, head down. We have Hamilton three seconds behind. Yeah, I had nowhere to go. Seriously, I had nowhere to go. I didn't see him. Copy that. Stay focused. Ten laps to go. I am focused, but they are stealing the race from us. Sebastian Vettel takes the checkered flag, but Lewis Hamilton wins the Canadian Grand Prix. Might that have had a different result had you had the black and white flag in your armoury for that race? I don't think so. It may have. I don't probably like to look back at things like that, to be honest, because it's the way things were, the interpretation of the way that... Oh, sorry, not the interpretation the manner in which the regulations were applied, understanding of the drivers and so forth, you know, even discussing it at a driver's meeting uh, with all of them. It wasn't a clear consensus if it should or shouldn't have been a penalty or what couldn't have happened. And one of the parts that probably a lot of people aren't aware of is that part of, to help me in my role, um, as well as helping the FIA and F1 in understanding what, you know, there was this principle, these three words that were running around a lot called let them race. But as the new boy on the block, no one could actually tell me what let them race actually meant. So I went through a process of getting a whole lot of incidents together last year and with zero warning, got the drivers after a driver's meeting and said, okay, play through the incidents. You tell me what you think the penalty should have been or no penalty without anonymously. So didn't ask them to put their names on it, anything, literally filled out a spreadsheet, same element with the team principals and same part with the sporting directors. Oh, fascinating. What results did you get in? Funnily enough, the mixed view, probably just like, you know, the spectators uh, and the viewing public, that there was a mixed view on a whole lot of things. But generally, those that were seen as an infringement previously and a breach of the regulations, 
all of them agreed that they were a breach of the regulations. Oh, sorry, not all, the majority, vast majority agreed that it was a breach. There might have been minor variations in what the penalty was, be it five seconds or 10 seconds, where you have some of the more, I'll call it old school views, where it was like, no, drive through is all it is. Um, which you look back a few years. Just out of interest, is that is there an age thing there? So the older drivers who have been about around a bit longer will think perhaps a little bit more differently to the young guys. Yeah, I think that I think that is a case, but also not just the drivers, team principals, sporting directors as a whole, and some have seen the evolution. So, you know, you go back or whatever it was, four or five years, um, maybe even a little bit longer. The only penalty was a drive-through or a stop-and-go penalty. Now we've had, as the sports evolved globally, um, you know, we've got the five-second penalty, the 10-second penalty, um, and all of that. So the core regulations themselves regarding driving haven't actually changed. It's just the manner in which they're applied has sort of varied along the way working with everyone. Now, you mentioned the driver's briefing there. Do you enjoy the interaction with the drivers? Oh, you know, it's at times, it's quite entertaining. Um, to be quite honest, I remember sort of going through, I think it was my first four or five drivers meetings last year and, you know, getting to the end of the briefing and saying, okay, is there any questions? And like just literal silence. And I sort of started questioning, okay, am I doing something wrong? Uh, they scared or whatever it may be, but obviously it's one, as I said, you know, earlier about the relationship side of it. Like with anyone, they, a lot of the drivers, the only person that they ever saw as the F1 race director from when they were karting was Charlie Whiting. Um, so it was a very different person and sort of developing that level of confidence and being able to, you know, interact, work together, you know, is something that's built up over time. It's not an overnight solution. Do you think it's because they see you as the, the headmaster and um, they don't want to say anything that might upset you or i don't know uh no to be honest as that sort of rapport has developed um and that relationship developed over the course of last year um and even moving on to here i get a sense that they're certainly much more comfortable to ask questions come up to as last year went on obviously it's a bit more difficult in the current environment to have one-on-one discussions with them other than like this but, you know, it's just sort of that, that rapport of being able to have the faith to come up and ask questions. Why did this happen like this? Or what could I have done better? So, you know, that's just, that's the relationship building and something that you just can't force. It's either there or it's not. And I think their level of knowing me and how I operate um, has got better. And me knowing how they operate, both as individuals and as a group, has got better there only comes with time there's nothing more that you can do with that does it get tense it can do has done yeah Yeah, absolutely it gets uh can get tense but at the end of the day i'm more than happy to hear various people's views but it's ultimately you know in an operational end of where we go and direction wise the buck stops with me so to speak as uh, they would say and you are the touch point. So, so to use yesterday's race as an example, you know, Lewis Hamilton gets a, a five-second penalty for that incident with Alex Albon, but you're probably the one who has to pick up the pieces from that with the drivers. Hundred percent. That's exactly right. So, you know, I 
said ask the stewards to look at it because it was at a point in the race that there was a lot going on. But yes, I am the touch point with the teams. I'm the touch point with the drivers. There's always two sides to any story. You will get both different perspectives. To their credit, in the vast majority of cases, um, from what I've seen, I won't say all, but the vast majority, a lot of them put their hand up and say, yep, I was the one at fault. Do you expect to have to pick up the pieces and have a conversation with Alex and Lewis this coming Friday after the driver's briefing? Um, I don't know. There's more than anything. There's questions that are asked more as clarifications on how things look or the way things are interpreted. But if there's some of them that are seen, incidents that are seen as relatively simplistic, you know, it's, you don't really get that many questions on it. It's more the ones that sort of, let's call it an each way better, a 50-50 occasion that are the ones that encourage discussion. And, you know, that was a lot of the reverse part of it last year of me asking, probably jumping ahead of it and asking them for their feedback because, you know, for me, there was some situations that were completely new. So getting their understanding and mindset is a big part of it because you can quite easily run off on a tangent without having the support of the group, be it drivers, be it teams, um, all the way through. So it's a two-way street, like any form of communication. You mentioned earlier about Korea. I just wanted to ask you about uh, your first sort of contact with Formula One. And you, you did say, you know, Korea 2010, you went, to, you went to live in Korea and project manage the whole thing. How difficult was it to get that race off the ground? Very. Honestly, I still have photos stored that, so as I said, I got there early June for, I think it was uh, October race. It may as well have been an, an off-road course. There was nothing there. Like I remember seeing my reports. Okay, I think it was last year even that I looked back at some old reports um, that I was sending to Charlie and to uh, Jean Todd, the FIA president. The title at the bottom of the photos, approximate location of turn one, <laughs> you know, and then approximate location of turn 16 with a big hole in the middle of it because the two parts of it hadn't sort of been, the dirt hadn't even been pulled together. So, And this is four or five months before the race is due to take place. Yep. It was a mountain of work to get there. We got there in the end and then uh, the great uh, rain gods uh, came down and poured upon us uh, Sunday. That's right. Do you remember? And it, it was a very late finish, wasn't it? I remember that. It was a very late finish. It was, um, you know, television does the world of wonders when it comes to lighting, um, but it was quite quite dark as well. But no, going back to my first live touch point was the 1992 Adelaide Grand Prix, where my mother actually brought me to Adelaide for the Grand Prix uh, with a family, a couple of family friends and went to the event and sat at the very end of the uh, Bravham Strait on the uh, left-hand side in the grandstand. And that was, you know, my first live touch point of F1. You know, obviously having watched some of the races on television that were in a more friendly time slot worked. But at the time, the 10, 11 p.m. Sunday nights uh, before a school day were not necessarily the thing to be done. That trip to Adelaide in 92 with your mum, is that what triggered the interest for you or... Had it started earlier than that? I always had an interest in motorsport from a younger age. Had my 
ride on cars and all the rest of it as a kid and uh, things like that. So I had uh, two of my uncles used to race at a, you know, a club level event, introductory level event in Australia. So there was that interaction with the uh, sport. But yeah, probably the sort of, let's call it the big turning point was Adelaide and where I had my aspirations of being in Formula One. Um, originally, I thought that that was going to be, or the, my only pathway in was as an engineer. Very quickly worked out that uh, physics and chemistry are certainly not for me once I started doing them at school. Um, but then getting to chat to people and who were some initial colleagues who have now become lifelong friends, be it the, the Alan Gows of, in the BTCC, Kelvin O'Reilly was the CEO of Toka in Australia at the time, you know, bouncing off them, then going on to working with the likes of the Tim Schenkens and so forth of this world. You know, you find that there's more to the sport through the path than just working on cars in an engineering or mechanical capacity. You had some uncles who raced a bit. Did you ever harbour ambitions to drive? None. Have you ever raced anything? Uh, raced a go-kart. So, <laughs> okay. uh, raced it. so I was uh, a number of friends of mine who I grew up with uh, we used to go out sort of every once a month, take our carts out to a local track, not even to race competitively because there was about 10 of us that each had a cart, but we'd effectively go to a cart track and race each other just for the fun of it and make a day of it purely as for exactly that. It was our social sort of outing. Um, but no, I really have always enjoyed the administration and everything that that race control environment, the administration, the regulatory side of it is what I really, really enjoyed. Two more things I wanted to ask you, if I may, about the journey. One is the influence of Tim Schenken. Funny that we're talking about him sat here in Austria, actually, because he finished on the podium in the 1971 Austrian Grand Prix. So chapeau to Tim, if you're listening to this. He was you know, the race director still is the race director um, of supercars. When did you first meet him? And what have you learned from Tim that, you, that sticks with you today? I think the first my first actual interaction with Tim uh, was, if I recall correctly, it was either, I think it was the 1999 uh, Bathurst uh, 500 Super Touring event. Um, so there was the two 500 kilometre events and it was atrocious weather. Um, and he was the clerk of the course and I was uh, looking after one of the teams. I think that interaction was an abusive one both ways, um, <laughs> telling him that he had rocks in his head and so forth. But as you, uh, as you sort of did uh, at that point um, with challenging officialdom. But no, Tim and I really got to know each other when I started working uh, with Tiger, which was effectively the 75% owner of supercars in 2003 and you know 2004 was when I started traveling uh, with Tim uh, as the race director and the stewards and I was effectively sort of the stewards secretary assistant let's call it come uh, race control assistant and we started to you know our relationship developed from there so I was with supercars in that role and then developed into a race control assistant role uh, through until 2008, I think it was, was, and then I actually got headhunted and went to CAMS to work with Tim. So, and then went along, you know, the internal CAM system, got to know Tim much better. And then 
obviously working with in Singapore and then Korea um, in what we did there. And then obviously did Rally Australia. And uh, after Rally Australia, I moved back to Melbourne and worked um, with Mark Scaife, multiple touring car champion, a good friend. And Mark had was the uh, chairman of the Supercars Commission at the time. And he uh, twisted my arm and said, okay, well, how about you do some stuff for me and do some stuff for supercars and go back into working in your old role in race control. And yeah, you know, Tim and I, when I first got started, he was a hard nut. Um, grandchildren certainly mellowed him a lot. <laughs> um, but, you know, he, he's been an immense influence in understanding the race control side of it. Became more and more open as the discussion sort of went on and that, you know, going back to that trust and that relationship side of it of working together. And Tim still, to this day, rings on at least a weekly basis or sends a text message or an email just to see how things are going or saying well done and you know he's he's been a he's been you know a significant part of learning that race control and race operational journey so yeah he he has had a big influence on my career someone described your relationship with him as paternal to me is is that fair is that how you see it <laughs> um in some ways, yes. I think we always used to uh, joke because the age difference. I said, I'm not sure if I call you dad or grandpa. <laughs> or, if, or if we really wanted to insult him, we called him great grandpa, um, which uh, we won't say what the response that comes out of Tim, but you and I know exactly yeah. how yeah. his uh, expletive reaction would be. But no, it's, there's a huge amount of respect there both ways and with both Tim and then Brigitte, um, his wife, uh, who came to and still does attend a number of the events you know when you as I said to going back to the lifestyle when you spend 18 to 20 weekends a year and it's not just weekends it becomes six seven day weeks from the moment of arriving at the airport to the moment getting back home there is a bond of different ways that's developed there so and then when you're back in Sydney is it true that you're like a cuckoo in that you go and base yourself in Scafie's office? Is that right? Uh, no, in Melbourne, but yes. Uh, in Melbourne, sorry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I still, um, <laughs> so when I have been in Melbourne, Scafie has been good enough to uh, grant me uh, my desk back. Um, to the. So it is true. You, you still go there now. Yeah, absolutely. So during um, lockdown, you know, thankfully it wasn't as strict in Australia as other places, but, you know, I worked out of his office and to the point that he said, well, might as well just leave your desk there in sort of a, if you come back in December, at least you've got somewhere to be. But no, Mark Mark and his family are, uh, are great friends. They are an extended family, um, be it Tony's wife or his daughters. It's very much a friendship rather than, you know, a boss type relationship. Well, wow, Michael, it's been so wonderful to chat and thank you so much for your time and what I know is a really, really busy week for you. Final thing from me, I've got to quick fire. Favourite driver of all time? Because he was out there, probably I would say a Villeneuve. And that's a Gilles. <laughs> okay. Uh, Favourite car? Favourite car. There's probably too many. To be honest, I am I could actually list off with you, and you're probably going to notice a bit of a theme in this, but between a Shelby Cobra, there's the older pontoon guard uh, Corvette Stingray, the, you know, having a look at the Ferrari 250 LM, gullwing Mercedes, like that sort of classic 
era of cars. No, and then if I think someone's asked me before, project would be a Mini Cooper S because I just reckon they're cool. Hang on, that's one extreme to the other, isn't it? <laughs> Correct, it is. But no, to give you that sort of, you know, I wouldn't put it one thing. If I money wasn't an issue, I'd have a pretty cool garage. <laughs> <laughs> There's no doubt about that, right? Last one, favourite circuit. If I said in my motherland would be Bathurst, if I said so far the ones that I have seen in F1, it would be either a Spa or a Monza, and each for different reasons. Okay, both historical tracks. That's really interesting. Good man. Well, Michael, thank you so much again for your time. It's been great to chat, and uh, I'll see you in a couple of days in the paddock. Well, see you in a couple of days, suitably socially distanced, or via another Zoom discussion with the media. But no, thanks, Tom. It's been great chatting. Who doesn't love a Shelby Cobra or a Mini Cooper S or Spa or Gilles Villeneuve? Clearly Michael is a man with great taste. But he's also a man with a great passion for motorsport and Formula One in particular. That enthusiasm radiates through in everything that he says and increasingly everything that he does at the track as well. Think of his let them race mantra. He also has a great backstory. Anyone who attended the Korean Grand Prix 10 years ago will know what I mean when I say it was a bit different. And for Michael to live there while overseeing the final build of the Yongam circuit must have been challenging in every sense. Michael, thanks for your time. It was great to catch up and see you in a few days back in the Spielberg paddock. Well, that's almost it for this week. But as ever, we'll quickly dive into the virtual mailbag before we go. And last week's guest, Mika Salo, has a lot of fans. Ash Miller got in touch to say this. Thanks for this week's cast. I hung on to every word of Mikasalo's candid and very concise recollection of his time in Formula One. Great to listen to one of my favourites from the 90s and noughties. It passes the time at work so much quicker. Well, I'm delighted to hear that, Ash. And yes, Mika is a typical Finn when it comes to conversation. And can you imagine how concise his debriefs must have been back in the day? Andy got in touch via Twitter to quote the following line from this episode. So you'd think you'd beat Eddie Irvine during the whole season. Yeah, easily, says Mika. Well, Andy, it would have been an interesting battle, wouldn't it? Irvine against Salo over a whole season. And for Mika to be as quick as Irvine in 99, after being parachuted into the team at zero notice, gives some credence to his self-belief as well. And let's end with this lovely message from Danny Hoare, who says, Fantastic as always, Tom. Wouldn't expect anything less than brutal honesty from Mika. Just confirms to me that Toyota could have been a powerhouse with the right structure. And it makes me wonder what Mercedes would have been if Braun and Schumacher hadn't been there at the beginning. Danny, Formula One is all about people. People working together for the greater good. And Toyota was definitely a missed opportunity both for them and for the sport. Can you imagine if they were still around today as one of the leading teams? We're running out of time, I'm afraid, so I'm going to have to stop there. And I'm sorry if I didn't get to read your message out, but let me assure you that I do read them all and I love your feedback. And if you want to drop me a message, I'm at Tom Clarkson F1 on Twitter, or you can use the hashtag F1 Beyond the Grid. Thanks for listening. Beyond the Grid is produced by F1 in association with Audio Boom. Until next time, keep it flat out.